Uh, we are in the book of Exodus this semester. We've been walking our way through the book of Exodus, and uh, we find ourselves at a um, probably one of my favorite points in the, ho- the whole story, Exodus chapter 16. Remember, the people of Israel have been enslaved to Egypt for 400 years, and God has just busted them out. And we find ourselves now in Exodus chapter 16. I'm just, instead of reading the whole entire chapter, I'm just going to read a couple of snippets. So if you have this sheet, or if you have a Bible, or a smartphone or whatever, you can follow along. Exodus chapter 16, we'll begin in verse 1. It says this, the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them to see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It it was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so that they can see the bread I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for the generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to the land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. This is God's word for us this evening. Let me pray and then we'll dig into it, okay? Father, we would ask that you would um, send your spirit to teach us now, to open up our eyes and to unclog our ears, to soften our hearts so that we would see and behold you, for all of your glory, all of your beauty, all of your goodness, and all of your truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you know anything um, about me, one of the things that you probably know about me is that I love the show The Walking Dead. And I know some of you are with me in that. Some of you have abandoned the project of The Walking Dead because the past few seasons have been a little slow. I'll give, you, you know, I'll give that to you. But... You know, I've thought about this. I've thought about why is it that this particular show is not just me. I mean, this is like a, there are millions of people around, I guess, the world that that love the show, that follow the show, 
And I, so, you know, I've thought about why are, why do people get so hyped up over like a, you know, if you don't know the premise of the show, it's, it's people trying to survive in a post-zombie apocalyptic world. That's what it is. What about that do, does capture so many people's attention? I think it's tapping into something, you know, uniquely human. I, because I think, you know, that just interesting zombie makeup and gore and violence would do more, it, would, it just wouldn't attract that many people. So, so what is it that attracts so many people to this show? Well, I don't really know, but here's my best guess. Here's my best guess as to why people like it. I think it's because when we watch it, we can identify with struggling to survive in a fallen world. You know, you're eking out an existence, trying to survive, trying to get through life in a world that is not your home, in a world that does not meet your needs, in a world that threatens you from all sides, from every angle. I think like, we, we can identify with that. Like, because, and I think the Bible makes sense of that feeling because the Bible says every one of us was born and woke up this morning in a world that's fallen, in a world that is not the way that it was designed to be, in, in, a, in a world that was not the way that it used to be. It's an inhospitable place where we can't have our needs met, so we're stockpiling and scavenging and trying to do whatever we can to survive, doing whatever we can to get some sense of happiness out of a world that threatens us. In other words, I think the world that we find ourselves in is wilderness. Wilderness. And that's actually, you know, as we parachute into this Exodus story, that's where we find the people of Israel. They're in the wilderness. And when you hear that word, don't think like, Appalachian wilderness, where it's lush and there's like mountains and it's like wild out there. Think of like Middle Eastern, barren desert wilderness. Hot, rocky, no food, no water, completely inhospitable, a total wasteland. And God has just rescued his people out of slavery. Remember, he busted them out of slavery for 400 years. They were in misery and you would have thought he would have just whisked them away immediately into the promised land, into paradise, into safety, but he doesn't. He brings them right into the middle of a wasteland. Well, why, though? Well, that's sort of the first question I think we need to look at. Why, I want to look at first the why of the wilderness. What's the reason behind why would God do this? Why would he bring his people into the middle of this incredibly tough, inhospitable situation? Well, look with me back at verse 3, if you have it. Look at verse 3. It says this. The Israelites said to them, talking about Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What does this show you? This shows you that even though Israel has gotten out of Egypt, Egypt has not gotten out of Israel. There, there are they're, they're looking back on the past and they're fantasizing about how awesome Egypt was. We're like, oh man, we totally miss it there. We, were, we sat around like huge pots of meat. We ate all this food. It was, it was amazing. And they're completely delusional because they're rewriting history. They're forgetting the fact that, oh yeah, when we were in slavery, uh, when we were in Egypt, we were in slavery. And the Egyptians were killing our children and abusing us and mistreating us. No rational person would look at that situation and like try to find the upside to it. But that's what they're doing. And I think this is it's an interesting classic example of Stockholm syndrome. Y'all may have read about this in your um, heard about this in your psychology classes. Stockholm syndrome is just it's a psychological phenomenon where, where someone has positive feelings towards their captor. 
even when they've been released from, the, from someone that may have kidnapped them or has mistreated them, abused them, they have positive feelings towards that person and actually want to go back to them. And if you're a Christian here tonight, I think every one of us, we've been, we've been saved from Egypt. We've been saved from our sin. We've been saved from our old slave masters. And yet, every one of us struggles with a spiritual form of Stockholm Syndrome, where we, we have positive feelings towards our, our captors, the very thing that we've been liberated from. So, for example, you know, if, if, if you're a Christian, you have been... You have been freed. You've been released from the oppression and the misery of overworking, of having to just always work to prove yourself. You've been released from that. But, you know, just like, just like the Egyptians, we love it and we want to go back to it. If you, you know, if you're a Christian, you've been released. You've, you've been freed from the misery and the oppression of, like, the social pressure. You know what I mean by that? Where, you're, like, you have to be the cool guy. You feel like you've got to be, like, the smart guy, the funny guy the party guy, whatever. Like, you've been freed from that sort of oppression and misery, and yet, just like Israel, we love it so much, we go right back to serving it. So the point is, like, if you're a Christian, you've gotten out of slavery, but the slavery necessarily hasn't gotten out of you. And that's why God brings you into the wilderness. That's why he brings the people of Israel into the wilderness. It's to strip them, to, to, to remove from them their love for their old slave masters. In other words, it's to bring, he brings them into the suffering of the wilderness, the hardship of the wilderness, to internalize their freedom, to personalize their freedom. You know, they're free in an objective sense, but not in a subjective sense. And so the hardship of the wilderness, the hardship of going into a really tough season of life is so that God would press into you a real liberation so that you would you know, experience a deeper connection with him, a richer experience with him, that you, you know, if you could boil it down this way, if you could boil down the whole point of the wilderness, it would be this. God is trying to get you to see that God is all you need. But so often, we we won't come to that conclusion until God is all we have. So he strips things, he removes things, he takes things away from our life so that God is all we have, and therefore we come to the conclusion that God is all we need. This is really the whole point of that song that we just sang, I Asked the Lord. It's written by um, John Newton, the same guy that wrote Amazing Grace. And if you have your sheet, I, I want to look back at it for just a second, because I don't know if you actually pay attention to the words that we sing at the songs in RUF, but if you do, uh, and I would encourage you to, this song is so unbelievably rich because it captures that experience. Let, let me just kind of walk through a little bit of it with you real quick. Here's what he says at the very beginning. He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. What's he doing? He's praying for spiritual growth. He's saying, God, I want to I seek your face more earnestly. I want to experience you more intimately. I want to like feel you and know my salvation in a, in a deeper sense. That's his prayer. So kind of jump ahead, and here's what he says. He says, um, this is verse 3, I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. He's saying, look, I was hoping that God would answer that prayer by taking away my sins, by sort of removing sort of the addictive, destructive habits that I have, that he would subdue this problem and kind of get rid of it. Then I would experience God in a deeper way. But keep going. 
Instead of this, instead of answering the prayer that way, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And he let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, even more than this, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. What's he experiencing? Wilderness, pain, suffering. He's coming face to face with his sin. All of his plans, all of his agendas are being thrown on its head. He's experiencing sort of the hardship of the desert. That's how God answered his prayer. Keep going. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Are you going to pursue the worm, me, the worm, to death? And then here's the Lord's response. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. Look, that's the whole point of the song. It's to say, look, God brings you into the wilderness. He brings you face to face with the hidden evils of your own heart. He brings you into a rough season with your family, with your boyfriend, your girlfriend. He brings you into a hardship of a hard semester so that these things can be stripped from you so that you may find your all in him. So that God would be all that you need once you realize that God is really all that you have. In other words, what God's doing is he's he's basically doing divine heart surgery. He's trying to transform the the very thing that you love so that you're freed from your love of destructive, abusive, awful, old slave masters. You can put it this way. You you know that you're growing as a Christian. You know that the the gospel is, is kind of sinking deeper into your heart. When you go to God, not for what you need, but as what you need. You're grow, you, you, you know you're growing as a Christian when you're praying to God, when you're going to him, not for what you need, but as what you need. And if that's true, if that's the, if that's the whole reason behind it, if that's the why of the wilderness, uh, let me draw out two quick applications from this. If that's the whole reason why God brings us into the wilderness, here's application number one. Reinterpret the wilderness. Application number one is that I think this changes the way that we interpret the wilderness. You know, if hardship, suffering, is is to strip you of things so that you would be drawn to God, be be brought closer to a relationship with him, experience a fuller connection with him, then that gives you a lens with which to reinterpret your own hard experiences. That God's not bringing you into a tough semester, an overwhelming workload, the pain of a breakup, because he's out to screw you and make your life miserable and hurt you, when you understand what he's doing with wilderness experiences, then you can interpret that in a way to say, man, this, as painful as this is, this is a gift. This is his love for me. He's, trying to, this, he's doing surgery on me. It's painful, but he's trying to root out my love for things that are killing me. And so it gives you the freedom. It gives you a whole new way to interpret the wilderness. Here's, here's another John Newton quote from a different context. Here's what John Newton says, and this, you would do well to memorize this and to meditate upon this. Here's what he says. Everything is needful that the Lord sends, that he sends into your life. Everything is needful that the Lord sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. 
you see how this changes the way that you interpret the wilderness? The application number one, reinterpret the wilderness. Application number two, stop avoiding the wilderness. Stop avoiding the wilderness. In other words, I think the reason why so many of us are spiritually bored or spiritually dead altogether is because we never allow ourselves to experience the wilderness. And therefore, we're never drawn into a deeper connection with God. I mean, think about it. For a lot of us, uh, we came from the um, most advantaged schools. We grew up with all the best advantages. We were connected to a network of influential people. We are strong, competent human beings. And, And so for you and I, we don't really ever experience real intense wilderness like some of our brothers and sisters around the globe do. And when we, when we do begin to get tastes of wilderness, you know, like the ache of hopelessness or the pain of rejection or the misery of loneliness, whenever we get little tastes of wilderness, maybe God's bringing us into sort of a wilderness season, we grab any distraction that we can to numb it out so we don't have to feel it. We grab our phone, we play video games till 4 a.m., we pound through six hours of Netflix, we drink, we shop, we smoke, we swallow pills, we just sort of mindlessly lose ourselves in social media. What are we doing? We are so allergic to experiencing the pain of the wilderness. We'll do anything we can to numb it, to stay strong. So this application is please stop avoiding the wilderness. Please stop trying to be strong. You are, you are ruining Christianity for yourself. Christianity is for the weak. It's for the desperate. Christianity is for those that are in the wilderness. And so really, you will, you will never experience the sweetness of the gospel until you taste the bitterness of the wilderness. So stop trying to avoid it. Stop trying to numb it out. Because when you numb it out, you numb out your experience with God as well. That's really the first thing that I want to draw from this passage is the why of the wilderness. And the why of the wilderness is... Basically, to get Egypt out of you, to get slavery out of you. Let's look at a second thing, though, because there's so much more here. It's not, we don't just see the, the why of the wilderness. Let's also look at the way of the wilderness. In, in other words, okay, so that's the reason behind it, but what does it look like? What are we supposed to do once we're actually in it? What is the day in and day out pattern? What is the way of the wilderness? Okay? Well, look back um, at the passage with me. Um, Well, actually, you know, up to this point, let me just say this. Up to this point, Israel has been entirely passive in this whole salvation thing. They have been on the receiving end of what God has done. They were just there, and God showed up and saved them. But as we just saw, God's not intent to just, you know, he's not content to just save them. He wants to transform them, transform the things that they love. But if they're going to grow, if they're going to be, mature, if they're going to develop as people that follow God, then they have to start participating. They have to actually put some effort into this gracious process that God has brought them into. And so here's where I get this from. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 says this, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. Now, look, okay, God could have just 
zapped their stomachs with food. They're hungry, they're in the wilderness, there's no food around. He could have just zapped their stomachs with food, but he doesn't. He, invite, he, he gives them instructions. And he says, look, I'm going to provide bread for you and provide food for you every single day, but you've got to get up and like, go get it and like, gather enough for each particular day. Every single day, get up and go out and get it. And if you don't, you will shrivel up and die of starvation. This process of God's transformation in their lives involves their participation. He's inviting them to participate in this process. Look, if, if we were talking, and I were to come up to you and say, man, I'm trying to get in shape, but I am so discouraged with my physical progress. I'm just, ugh, I'm just not where I need to be. And you were to say, okay, Matt, well, tell me, like, what are you doing to work out? Like, what's kind of your routine? And I was like, well, I like to go on runs. I, I, I run for about 20 to 30 minutes at a time when I go and run. And I do... Um, I do about two or three runs a week. Uh, but I take the weekends off. And, you know, winter break, I, took, I was with my family, so I took winter break off. And, you know, this is a really, man, this is a really kind of busy season of life for me. So I'm kind of slacking off right now so I can focus more on work. And, you know, just to be honest, put my cards on the table. I've, I've eaten pretty much nothing but Hot Pockets and Pop-Tarts uh, for the past few weeks. You would look at me and be like, now, I don't, I don't think you understand how the body works then. Of course you're discouraged. Look, we would never, ever, ever, ever treat our physical lives like that and expect positive results. But of course, that's exactly what we do with our spiritual lives. And then we wonder why we aren't connecting with God, why we're bored, why we're numb, why we are, you know, quote, just not feeling it. And, and I think, really... Man, I I say that not to shame you or discourage you about where you are in your spiritual life. I, I, I really do think this passage is incredibly encouraging. Because what it does is it sets the standard for us. It tells us what the normal Christian life is supposed to look like. I mean, look at it. If you look at it, do you want to know what the Christian life is? Here's the Christian life. You're walking through a wilderness on your way to the promised land. Step by step, on your way to the promised land through a wilderness, and it's a daily taking in and being nourished by what the Lord provides. That's it. That's the Christian life. You're walking through the wilderness. It is a long journey through the wilderness on your way to the promised land, and it's a daily taking in what the Lord provides. And so, the daily, every single day, ongoing spiritual exercise regimen is walking. It's obeying. It's taking the Lord's Supper, it's praying, it's reading the Bible, it's repenting, it's fighting your sin. It is a day in and day out, one foot after the other, struggle through the wilderness. That's the Christian life. And, and, you know, in some ways I hope that encourages you because, man, Christian ministers, myself included, can be so guilty. Christian ministries, churches can be so guilty of presenting Christianity in a way that says... Once you become a Christian, you are going to experience this high-voltage spiritual buzz the rest of your life. It is just—it is a tidal wave of spiritual groovy vibes from here on out where you're connecting with God, and it's just this high-voltage electric thing that you experience. And if you aren't experiencing that all the time, then something's wrong with you. You're doing something wrong. And I think that can be incredibly misleading because, you know, look at the Exodus story. The Exodus story is our story. What is it? We're walking through a freaking wilderness. 
one foot after the other. And we will not get home until either we die or Jesus comes back. But until then, what are we doing? We're, we're walking day in and day out, following Jesus. And sometimes, like an exercise regimen, you get the spiritual high. I mean, you get the runner's high. You get sort of the amazing experiences, but that's not the norm. The norm, one foot after the other, one foot after the other, continuing to walk, continuing to follow Jesus, even when it's hard, even when it sucks, even when it doesn't seem like this is working. That's the Christian life. And so, of course, let me just kind of state the obvious. Yes, I do think this means that this, in, this involves you in a daily participation, daily, of communing with the Lord, nourishing on his word, praying to him, weekly meeting with people, uh, weekly corporate worship, pouring out your heart, pouring out your life every single day for someone else around you, your neighbor. That's hard. That's the one foot in the other, repenting, believing kind of stuff. But that's sort of the way of the wilderness. It's the way of the Christian life. Sometimes it's awesome. But walking through a wilderness is not always that sexy. It's not always that amazing. You're walking through a wilderness on your way to the promised land. That's the way of the wilderness. So we looked at the why, the way. Here's the last thing. Because if you noticed, I included it, verse 35 tells you that they're doing this for 40 years. 40 years. Wandering through a desert, following God, eating whatever he provides for 40 years. How do you endure that long in such a hard context? Well, here's the last thing we're going to look at. The hope of the wilderness. The hope of the wilderness. What's the hope? Well, look back at verse 2. In verse 2 it says, In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And actually it tells you in verse 8, which I didn't, I didn't tell you, that Moses and Aaron says, they, they basically say, look, who you're really grumbling against is God. It's not us. It's God. But notice, it's the whole community, everybody that got out complaining, bickering to them and to God. Look at verse 3 is their complaint. They're basically saying, dude, being with God in this wilderness sucks. We hate this food. We really want to go back to the place where we are mistreated and abused. They're complaining, they're whining, they're grumbling, they're disobeying, they're being defiant. What's God's response in the very next verse? Look at verse 4. He rains down bread from heaven. Instead of scolding them, he showers them with grace. Look, they're in the wilderness, they have no food. They can't, there's no option for food. They will die. And yet, while they're throwing up their middle finger to God, in the middle of their disobedience, God provides them with the very thing that they need for life. For life. To sustain them. To nourish them. And actually, well, okay, so here it is. The hope of the wilderness. Here's the hope of the wilderness. The hope of the wilderness is that the God that brings you into the wilderness is the same God that sustains you in the middle of it. The hope of the wilderness is that the God that brings you into the wilderness is the same one that sustains you in the middle of it, that feeds you, that nourishes you, even when you're being a jerk, even when you don't get it, even when you're complaining and betraying God and throwing up your middle finger to God and you're being defiant and disobedient, he is still, by his grace, sustaining you in the middle of it. And actually, there's a little detail here that I think is so 
um, endearing to me. If you look at verse 31, it says that the, the bread that God provides, the manna, is like honey. It's, it's sweet, which, is, which I think is a detail here that really shows you God's tenderness. I mean, he could have just given them pure, like, nutrition bricks, like bland food bars, like here vitamin bars, but he doesn't. He gives them something that's sweet, something that they can, can savor and be delighted in. And so think, think about this image. Here is something that comes down from heaven, and when it is broken and taken in, it is sweet and it nourishes you and sustains you and gives you life. No wonder, centuries later, Jesus stands up in John chapter 6, and he says, I am the true bread from heaven. The true bread. The reason why it says true bread is because the manna in this story, the bread in this story, was just an appetizer. It was a foretaste pointing to him. Because just like the manna comes down from heaven, Jesus comes down from heaven to earth. And his body is broken on the cross. And when you take him in by faith, you experience the sweetness of his grace and he sustains you and provides you with eternal life. He is the true bread from heaven. The, the, the manna, these people got hungry later that day. But Jesus says in John 6, when you have the real bread from heaven, you will never hunger again. And, and so, you know, think with me just for a little bit about that vivid, disturbing metaphor of eating Jesus, ingesting Jesus. What does that mean? And by the way, if that spooks you out, if that kind of weirds you out, the people in John chapter 6 got weirded out too. Jesus started talking about this, and it says that there was this group of people that were following him, and it said they kind of pieced out after Jesus started talking about, hey, I kind of want you to like eat me, and that's how you get life. But think about what he means by that. Think about, think about that imagery. The sweetness of Jesus, you can only experience the sweetness of Jesus when you take him in by faith. And to savor Jesus, to taste, to delight in him, means so much more than just believing facts about him. Just learning data about him, about the Bible. To savor Jesus, to experience the sweetness of him, to taste him, means that you you marinate your mind upon who he is and what he has done until it warms your heart. Until Until your soul is sweetened by it. And so you think about the cross and you think about, man, Jesus, who was whole, became broken so that I, who am broken, could become whole again. He is is faithful to me when I am unfaithful to him. When I betray him and want nothing to do with him and run right back to my abusive old taskmasters, he is faithful and he sustains me and he continues to pursue me. You, you, You think about those realities until it is sweetness to your soul. Here's another way that the Bible puts it, is it says, delight yourselves in the Lord. But you're not just tasting him. You know, when you, when you bring food into you, you bring it into the core of who you are, and the food metabolizes and sort of energizes everything about your life. It's the same way with Jesus. When you ingest Jesus and take him into the core of who, who you are, it's like he metabolizes and begins to sort of work his way out into every nook and cranny of your life. You know, you are what you eat. And so when, when you take Jesus into the core of who you are, you begin to resemble him over time. You find yourself more loving, more gentle, more kind, more joyous, joyful. So, you know, of course, you know, the idea of taking Jesus in by faith, eating Jesus, it reminds me of the movie Elf, and um, as it does with you too, I'm sure. 
Uh, you, remember, you remember the movie Elf, Will Ferrell? Buddy the Elf? He's in the North Pole, and his real dad, his biological dad's in New York City, and he you know, discovers this once he sort of outgrows sort of the elf factory place, wherever, Santa's house, wherever they are. And he leaves the North Pole, and he goes to find his dad. And so he comes to New York City, you know, he's eating the gum off of the handrails, and uh, he's waving hi to the people who are trying to hail cabs. And he eventually finds his dad. And when he meets up with his dad, he so overwhelms his dad with his love, it totally, like, ruins the guy's life at first. It's, it's dismantling his job, his his family is now getting all tense. Like, everything about this life, about this man's life gets disrupted. Kind of, it's all screwed up. But what happens in the end? In the end, the dad is changed. He, he's so kind of worn down by Buddy the Elf's love that he's, he's completely changed. He, he, um, he's freed from his workaholism. You know, remember at the end, he quits his job. He's freed from it. He, um, he's reunited with his family. You know, his family had all this tension sort of building up throughout the movie. And at the end, he's reunited with them. He sort of has his arms around them. He's given a surge of joy. I mean, at the end, he's like singing Christmas carols with everybody there at the end, remember? So his life became better. But throughout the whole movie, man, his life is getting disrupted and dismantled. And that's what happens when God sends you into the wilderness. Your life gets dismantled. Your agenda gets disrupted. Your life, it feels worse. It feels messed up. But it's because God's bringing you into this process, this, this refining fire heart surgery process to spit you out on the other side more whole, more reconfigured after his heart. But what he does is he says he's inviting you to trust him. He's inviting you to walk with him through the desert to walk with him through the wilderness, knowing that he will provide. And as you take in what he provides day in and day out, one foot after the other, you really will wake up one day in the worst of circumstances with everything screwed up around you. And you'll find yourself in the middle of it, feasting. His, his grace and his presence will be sweet to you. It's that image. It, it's, it's what Psalm 78 says, that God spreads a table in the desert. Worst of circumstances. And yet, as you walk with him through the wilderness, you, you wake up and you find yourself one day being nourished by him, sustained by him, delighting in him. And so the invitation for you tonight is to delight yourselves in the Lord because he so delights in you. Let me pray. Father, will you, by your grace, give us a vision of what it would look like to follow you, the hardship of that, to trust you one foot after the other, one step after the other, to know that you sustain us, that you nourish us, you provide for us, and you even make it sweet throughout the, throughout the process. And so, Father, please give us faith to trust you. Give us faith to follow you where you guide us, to feast on the real bread from heaven. Give us faith if we don't have it. Reinvigorate our, our faith if it's just flickering and weak, and help us to really delight ourselves in you, for you so delight yourself in us. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.